Hello, everybody. Welcome to Monday Night Live from a very sunny 28 degrees in Swanage. I'll just show you the picture outside of our uh, studio window. It's absolutely fantastic. We can't wait to get out there. So tonight, um, I've been following super successful people all around the world for a number of years. And tonight, I've got one of those with me, Patricia Fripp, who's enjoying the sun in Swanage, surprised about the the weather and I've got Patricia's latest book here which uh, I recommend everybody to get a copy of deliver unforgettable presentations which we all need to do and don't forget you may not be a professional speaker but you're a presenter whether you're presenting to your kids to your nieces and nephews and whether you're presenting to clients or to the local rotary club we've had a great day we have the mastermind group which started as breakfast in the Pines Hotel, which is a fabulous hotel. Then we went to Dorchester. Godfrey showed us around Poundbury, which is the King's, uh, I don't know what you call it, Godfrey. Uh, you'll put me right on that. All the areas owned I, by the King. Yeah, it's part of the Duchy of Cornwall and it's his um, architectural uh, heritage and development that started over 20 years ago. And it's due to finish in 2025, but it's pretty full at the moment. Full employment, great place to visit, lots to see. Definitely worth a visit. And then we went into the middle of Dorchester and went to the Shire Hall, where which was uh, where people were tried. Looked at some pretty uh, interesting situations. Godfrey dressed up as the judge. Then we went to the wise man at West Stafford. And now we're on here. But uh, I remember what my mother said. If you stick around with, with smart people, you catch their smart stuff. And that's what we've been doing today. So uh, I'm with Patricia Fripp, uh, who needs no introduction. She's been over here in the UK for three weeks. Patricia, thanks for joining us on Monday Night Live. Patricia, the first question I want to ask you is, who influenced you the most? I was very lucky, Derek. I had two magnificent parents. And my father, who was a self-made successful entrepreneur in the real estate business, the first day I went to work to serve my apprenticeship, as he pushed me out the door to get the number 24 bus to Bournemouth, said, in your career, don't concentrate on making a lot of money. Rather, concentrate on becoming the type of person people want to do business with, and you most likely will make a lot of money. And that has been the foundation of how I try to build my businesses. And my mother, who was smart in a whole different way, and my mother would have been me if she had been born when I was born. And she said, of course, it's the inner you that counts. However, you always have to dress up and look good so that you attract people and then they will find out how nice you are, how smart you are and how valuable you can be to them. OK, well, you set off for America when you were 20. I know you've been working in Jersey and uh, you met some interesting people. And I remember that you were recommended to Jay Sebring, who was a most famous hairdresser, who was. Well, not exactly. OK, not exactly. When I first arrived in America, in San Francisco, no job, nowhere to live, didn't know anyone, five hundred dollars and a pair of scissors, and I got a license to use them. And my first boss, Mr. Paul, at the Mark Hopkins Hotel, said, 
because I had discovered that hairdressers work on 50% commission. That was a license to steal. steal. And he said, Patricia, I want you to go back to England, bring over 27 of your friends, and I'll become a multimillionaire. And I said, Charles, I've never worked with anyone who looks works as hard as I am, so you're lucky to have me. Then my next job, age 23, was in the first fancy men's hairstyling industry, uh, the first fancy salon. Men's hairstyling was a new industry. And the founder of that industry, for the most part, was Jay Sebring. Hollywood hairstylist did all the movie stars hair. And he took over our salon. Oh, okay. Okay. And so Jay Sebring inherited me. And frankly, these were very chauvinistic times. Mm. He might not have hired me, but he inherited me. And he taught me a valuable lesson. He said, we only have one gimmick, the best haircut in town. But it wasn't what he said that was so fascinating as who he said it to. Time magazine, Newsweek, Playboy magazine, when no one else was talking about men's hairstyling. And he said, as soon as Herb Kane, which is the local at the time popular columnist, everyone read Herb Kane, even if they didn't read anything else in the paper. And he said, as soon as Herb Kane puts a notice that I've taken over the salon, the phone will ring off the hook, which it did. At our opening party, Paul Newman, Joanne Woodward, um, what was his name? <laughs> anyway, I told you. You told us a lifetime, yeah. Anyway, um, it, was, it was absolutely spectacular, and we were on the map, and then... If you are old enough to remember, and perhaps you didn't know in England, but there was one night, and of course he still had his home in Los Angeles, and he he would fly back to Los Angeles on a Friday and come back for Monday morning. And this day, we stood at the end of our booze, and he, he kissed me on the cheek and said, you are doing terrific haircuts. Now, that was like being acknowledged by God. And then he went to my best friend, Frankie, worked in the next booth, who Frankie had given him a mug that was sandblasted and gold leaf, Mr. Sebring. And he handed Frankie the mug and said, will you look after this till I come back on Monday? And then Saturday morning, Frankie and I used to go to breakfast and we got to the salon and it was 10 minutes to 10, I was in on my second haircut, Joe Oliver. The phone rang and I picked it up. It was a friend of mine from a radio station in Ukiah. And he said, have you heard the news? I said, what news about my boss? What about my boss? And that was when we learned that Jay Sebring with Sharon Tate, who was his ex-fiance and good friend, had just been murdered by Demanson. Oh, wow. And so Frankie said, you will become the star of the salon, which started me on the world of PR and radio and television. However, Jay Sebring, when he said, we only have one gimmick, the best haircut in town, I began to realize it doesn't matter how good we are or what we do, the world has to know about it. And that's when I became what I now call a shameless self-promoter. I might not have done it at that time, 
but I do know. So a little girl from Winborn yes. goes to America and becomes a shameless self-promoter. I know. Yes. I know. And you can't tell that to our groups in the in England because they'll be seriously embarrassed because we're shy and reserved. Oh, yeah, as, it's as, disgusting. As, as you it's know. Disgusting. Now, one of the things yes. I tell people in the UK is to have You mean one of the pieces of advice you tell people? One of the pieces people. of advice I tell people in the UK is to have three business cards. I got that from you. Yes. Share it with today's audience, please. When I was a hairstylist, I had my own business. Nobody had to teach me what I did. When I cut someone's hair, and I had very beautiful business cards, I would say, here are three business cards, one for you and two for the next two people who tell you how good your hair looks. And then the next one, I say, here's three people. Oh, no, no, I know. I still have my last card. It's for the three people who tell me my hair looks good. And so often, Derek, in every industry, people say, well, refer me. And the question is, if I tripped over the perfect prospect for you, how would I recognize them? Hmm. But even now, you could say, here, Mr. Arden, here are my three business cards. One for you, for when you need me again, and two for the next people who say to you, I need a good lawyer, do you know one? And what we have to do is be very specific with who our prospect is. And if you have an extra business card, who do you give it to? Absolutely. I'm just having a little technical issue here. So I'm trying to deal with it, but uh, we uh, won't worry. And we can all use that in every walk of life. Now, in England, I've shown I've given that example. People have looked at me. The body language goes, is he loopy? And in fact, lots of people don't have business cards now. That's No, they don't. And I think they're use, losing a competitive advantage by mm. not giving somebody a small card to put in their wallet to remind yes. them later of, of, of that. So, because people say, well, let's collect on LinkedIn. That's good. But you really want to put people in your database and code them a certain way. Or on your, news, on your newsletter. We're only doing this because I had a newsletter list and... On the um, on the 23rd of March, I emailed it and uh, everybody uh, signed up. And so you're here for that uh, for that reason. Now, talking about speaking, but this is not specific to speaking. Um, you do an early warm up with the audience. Um, David Heiner says, don't don't be uh, don't be on time. Be early. Yes. The competitive advantage of any negotiation situation of getting there early connecting and building rapport but you do that in a specific way well way certainly as a speaker it's i'm a great believer in you get to the room now if you're speaking a convention go to the room the night before and make friends with the stage be very familiar with the room you will sleep better then you get there early so that once you've got your powerpoint and everything set up then you talk to the audience this is what i call the schmooze factor, or act as your own warm-up act. Now, Darren LaCroix, my co-author in Deliver Unforgettable Presentations, calls it before rapport. But this is very good for two reasons. One, it is very difficult for a speaker to go from nothing to delivery mode. And you're by just schmoozing and talking, welcoming, thank you. What is your interest in the subject? Thank you for selecting this session. 
you are warming up your body and your voice. And it is wonderful for the audience because we both are fans of Cialdini. It's the laws of reciprocation. The fact that you are interested in your audience, they feel obligated to give you their attention at the beginning of the speech. Now, they they don't feel obligated to hang on your every word for 90 minutes unless you deserve that. But at the beginning, and even if you're not talking to them, they can see that you are in the crowd and you're interested in them. And of course, this also implies to any negotiation, any business situation, if you'll be, if you're there early, you'll be respected. And the first law of, of uh, Giordini is, do they like you? Mm. And actually they're going to like you a lot more if you're there early and respectable. And of course I would move maybe some of the uh, chairs round. I might uh, get the coffee ready, even if I'm in their offices and there's no one there. Why not? Why not take advantage of the situation, feel comfortable, um, et cetera, as well. You know, what I often used to do, in, I was very big in advertising specialties. I was even written about in advertising specialty magazines and spoke for the advertising specialty industry. But I had some big clips called Don't Get Clipped, Get Fripped. I had tip cards with my just and I would put them on the front few rows. And then I would go to the back of the room and say, you know, here's a nice gift if you sit in the first row. And I would even get people by the hand and say, you know, your speaker's very short. If you don't sit up front, you're not going to get your money's worth. And I would bring people from the back to sit at the front now you have to be there early enough definitely yeah and um if it's a small training event then i would um move the rub around to my satisfaction yes um not leave it to to somebody else now um you talk about an interesting statistic or an unknown fact okay. to start talks with well there are many ways to begin a presentation and this would work with a sales presentation. It would even work if you're running team meetings. And it is an interesting statistic or little known fact. However, whenever you use an interesting statistic or little known fact, add an emotion. Would it interest you to know? Would it surprise you to know? Would it amaze you to know? Would it shock you to know? Would it disgust you to know? Now, if you were talking about the amount of rubbish or the what we're doing to the environment, you could use that. And because you know I'm a great promoter in you-focused language, any time we hear you, it's almost like we, oh, we reconnect. What? What? Would it interest you to know? Oh, what? They pay attention again. And, of course, you have to put the pause in. My speech coach from years ago, Ron Arden, used to say, an audience is like a cow. It loves to be milked. Have I told you that no, before? No, never heard it before. Never heard it In before. other words, that's what I call minking the audience. You're, you're having them lean forward. Oh, what? What? Would you to know? Would it interest you to know that here in Swanage, Winston Churchill and President Eisenhower walked down the platform in 1944 to check out there how the D-Day landings were progressing. 
hardly anyone knows that. I know, but last time you took me on a, on a steam train trip and I said, Derek, in this station at Corfe Castle, there's a picture of Winston Churchill. There you are, you see. Mm -hmm. So that's, and you start that if, as soon as you're introduced? Well, or do you say, welcome, my no, name's I Patricia, don't, no, Patricia no, because they know who you are. Now, even, and Gary McKenzie and Carl Walsh and my speaker buddies know that even if you're in a breakout session and you have to introduce yourself, I would always say something of interest to the audience before you introduce yourself. In fact, what I did at the American Payroll Association recently, which I usually do, I get on stage and I'll say, because uh, I've been schmoozing the audience and on the stage and, and, and informally, I say, and as people come in, I say, no, this is just informal. We will formally begin at exactly two o'clock. Mm. Mm. And then I get on stage and say, well, I am usually introduced before I speak. So I will pretend I am somebody else and introduce me. You will then applaud profusely and I'll begin the presentation. And they always laugh. And then I introduce myself. They applaud. I walk to a different part of the stage and then I begin. Fantastic. So another little bit of audio issues that we were we were having there. Let's talk about you focus language because right. that's something. And I thought you told me a long time ago you had to have five U's to one eye, and most people get it the other way around. Although last night when we were having a drink, you said that statistics. Well, right. I don't get the uh, the example that I give is when I was helping somebody deliver a sales presentation. One of my friends who was a sales manager at the Fairmont Hotel called and said, help. As you know, I am a great salesperson one on one. However, I have the opportunity to deliver a sales presentation to a convention committee who are staying at the Fairmont Hotel. And they are seriously, you know, they're considering bringing their convention to San Francisco. However, they're also seriously considering San Diego. And I get very nervous. And he, so I asked him the questions we should all ask ourselves. One, who is the audience? Well, it's a, it's a convention committee. Two, how long do you have to speak? Eight minutes. Then three, what are you really selling? It's not the Fairmont, it's San Francisco over San Diego. And then what many people think or forget to think, I said, what is it worth to the Fairmont Hotel if you get the business? He said, $500,000. Wow. I said, let me get this right. You have eight minutes to make $500,000. That is $1,038.61. A second. A second. Even yeah. when I, I thought you were going to say you that. pause. Yeah. So this is how I said, because they knew him. He'd been showing them around. So I suggested he said, in the next eight minutes, you will decide the best decision you can make for your association and your members is to bring your convention to San Francisco and the Fairmont Hotel. That is five you or yours. One Fairmont. 
So I do not say every single time it has to be five to one. That is the example. But if you work on the principle, and this is true in all walks of life, everybody else is more concerned with themselves than they are with us. That even when you write a letter or an email, write down what you want to say and then go back and say, how can you not use the word I or how do you not use I at the beginning of each sentence and paragraph and reorganize it? And it's difficult, isn't it? This, yes, is, this, very is, often. this isn't easy. No, yeah. uh, I have the same problem every Monday morning when I write my newsletter. So look, now I've... what did I suggest about your newsletter? One simple change. You were coming from Swanage. And what did I suggest? Well, I can't remember, but I'm just going to tell the audience. <laughs> I got up at five o'clock yesterday morning and wrote my newsletter. And because of something that happened at home, I couldn't get my wife to proofread it. So I asked Patricia to proofread it over dinner last night when I was absolutely exhausted <laughs> yeah. and it was like going back to school and having a lesson and those of you that know Patricia probably knew what happened to me well it was just a matter of you're talking about from Swanage I'm I like adjectives which you seem to be allergic to adjectives <laughs> And that is, well, if people don't know Swanage, what descriptive word, what adjective? Historic. This is an ancient, and of course, America doesn't know what ancient is, but ancient, so, but it's historic. A lot's happened here. Remember, you made me buy the book mm, or I highly did. recommended I did. I did. about Swanage and the Wall. There's a lot of history. We're part of the Jurassic coach, which coast which goes back how many years oh millions, millions. millions exactly millions. Yeah, yeah. you can understand why historic was a good word well godfrey came up at lunchtime with seaside didn't he yes. that was his objective yes. do you think that was a good word of course it is because it's true mm. and it helps people who don't know have a picture of it and also my other suggestion is one idea or sentence mm. so short sharp sentences i read well once, one, full, full, 14 words a sentence was that right well i very often clients send me the scripts and i know i sent back to one 78 words in one sentence is oh, too much yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. but one so, idea nightmare. a sentence yeah. because why derek remember because we speak to be what remembered and recommended no, repeated. Remembered and repeated. You can see we haven't rehearsed this. We should have rehearsed this, shouldn't we? No, it's much more real. <laughs> Good. Okay. Now, um, you also start with, would it interest you to know, don't you? Yes, that's one of mine. One of yours. What else? Well, would it interest you to know? Uh, because it's, it's bringing the audience in. And another opening is, I wish you could have been there. Yeah. And then, so, and the principle behind this is, we are, we're going to tell a story from our own life. However, we bring them into the scene with, I wish you could have been there. You have to make sure you're taking them somewhere they would want to go. Because mm. I know somebody, you know, got fripp opening lines. I wish you could have been there. You know, it was my father's funeral. <laughs> now, 
that would work at the end. If the audience knew throughout the speech that your father had a wonderful life, he be, had great happiness, success, lived long enough to see his children, his grandchildren successful. And then when you tell them, I wish you could have been there, the church was packed. Then you could take them to that. You city. can see from my body language, I don't, I don't like that ending. You I do not no, like no, that no. ending at all. <laughs> that was... That was an example okay. of someone who did that. And I said, it wouldn't work at the opening because we haven't got enough context, but it would at the end, if you wanted to use it. Now, one of my uh, hugely successful people that have appeared on the leadership show four times is Tracy Hooper. Oh, yes. Tracy, one of my, I'm a big fan of Tracy. Tracy from Portland, Oregon. Yes. And she's got a book out called Words to Lose, Words to Use. Now, you tell me off for using words like staff shed loads, boat loads, and things like that, that people and use. Things, and things, things. It's and never things. a thing. Yes. Um, I think I've done quite a good job cutting it out sometimes, but not other times. What's, what's the problem with these sort of throwaway jargon? Well, if you look at it, specificity builds credibility. When, when you are, if you think back to your years in the bank, if you as a younger person was going to go and do business with corporate board, C-level audience, by being specific, it builds your credibility beyond the years. It, it's like a friend of mine said, who was very well-dressed, he was talking to his the gentleman who sold him the clothes, and he said, I can't tell the difference between the $1,400 suit and the $1,800 suit. And the brilliant salesman said, oh, sir, not many people can. However, the people you want to impress know the difference. And that's what it's the same with language. The people you want to impress even if they don't speak that way, recognize it is a great way to speak. Plus, we are speaking to be remembered and repeated. Remember, one of the chapters, chapter two, is clarity, clarity, clarity. Unless you are very clear and specific, people don't get the point, don't get the picture. Now, he, so I always say, if it weren't a thing, what would it be? That is my most frequently asked question of all my clients. As one brilliant engineer was saying, there are two things people love about. And he's talking about his product. And I said, well, if they weren't things, what would they be? He said, innovative upgrades. Mm. I said, well, there are billions of people in the world. What people love your innovative upgrades? My mother wouldn't care. The window cleaner wouldn't care. He said, systems administrators, who is mostly in the audience. So can you understand that amount of specificity would again pull the audience in? And then it's never stuff, except when Derek uses it. It's never stuff. That, that's what you do with your turkey at Christmas. You stuff it, Derek. Then you can. Uh, there might be a time I would let you go when you say is the garages full of stuff. Then I might let I would say rubbish. Okay. But okay, here are a few new. You, you, then of course it's not a bunch, and it's not tons. If you can't weigh it, it's not tons. If it's not fruits and vegetable, it's not a. It's not a bunch. Hmm. Now here are a few more that they might not have heard 
if on your show. Let's go. Don't say I think when people ask your opinion, especially if you're speaking to clients or to your senior leadership. I think such and such. No. Think is a girly word. Okay. A less confident. You say, based on my experience, this, or based on the extensive research, or based on the findings of our cross-functional team, this is what we recommend. It's building more credibility than just what you think. Now, you think, but based on your experience, research, or the findings of the team you were reporting from. I feel I have I use that word a lot. Anyway, we better move on. We better move on. Okay, you don't want one more? I, okay. All right, one more. Go on, quick. One more. Because I work with a lot of technical people who what we do in a lot of our businesses, we simplify the complexity of what I do or what we do or our product or service. But I say especially if you're selling a product that could cost millions of dollars, which some of my clients do, or even a hundred thousand. If you, in trying to explain it, you say simply or basically, I say, no, take those words out. You are simplifying your explanation to make it understandable for a less technical audience. However, if you put these words simply and basically in the conversation, people will often think, well, why does it cost so damn much? Yeah, 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 yeah. Good point. Great point. So with that, shall I shut up? No, because I've got a couple of questions <laughs> I want to ask you about the Colombo Close. But before right. we go there, uh, you invite questions not before the end you invite questions before the end and um you talk about bank pocket questions in okay one of your well books. well in the structure of a presentation and there is a real structure in fact many brilliant speak speakers give great messages but they don't truly understand the way a, a, a well-structured presentation mm. should go because a well-structured presentation is built on a premise, a big idea, a central theme. And you go through your points of wisdom, which gives examples of what you're discussing. And then at the end, there is a process. And you will read all about it. It's not like you haven't heard me say I'm it, but it's still in there. So in your review, you are going to ask, or you can, you don't have to, but you can ask a rhetorical question based on your premise. So perhaps your session, Derek, is in, what would the title of a negotiation session be? Everything is negotiable. Okay, good. Everything is negotiable. And you've delivered your principles. And then you're, you are saying, so why or how, how is everything negotiable? And now you're going to do a review. So that's a rhetorical question based on your premise, the big idea. Then you review the six steps, one, two, three, four, five, six. And then you say, I challenge you to take your notes, go back with your team and discuss what you believe you've learned because the best way to reinforce what we what you learned is to teach it to someone else fabulous so you're challenging them to take action mm. so, and then you say we have 10 more minutes and this is what you can do 
if you're going to say, well, now we've got 10 minutes for your short specific questions. And I would say we have 10 minutes before my concluding remarks, because very often people leave mm. on the questions. They think it's over. No. And then, you know me, I say, what are your short specific questions based on what you've heard? Now, if this is a longer seminar and it might be smaller and interactive, I will say, what are your short specific questions based on what you've heard, which is this chunk of content? And if someone says, well, how do you open your presentation? That's the next subject. So you you and if people chat on. I say, and your question is, and your question is, and your question is. And sometimes I say, I'm sorry. Your question is so high level, I don't know what you're saying. Can you restate this in a short, more specific way? In other words, they're talking nonsense. Yes. I know, I know. But that's a nice way of putting it. However, you, there's another bonus in your back pocket. What you can always say is we have 10 minutes. I can certainly happy take your questions or would you like a bonus negotiation technique? Mm -hmm. And based on my 40 so they, years so they experience, 90% of the time, if you give them a choice, they'll take a bonus because they know that whenever you open up to the audience, you are all at the mercy of the quality of the questions. But now let me get the point. So however you handle it, and then you might say, Thank you for your interest in the subject or thank you for your active participation. And then this is the last words linger. And, rem and you might challenge them again. Remember, whatever the challenge was. And then you, and then it can be a Columbo close because it's almost like you Columbo, if you're old enough to remember, although it lives in reruns, was a brilliant detective who would always, as he was leaving, it's over, he's leaving, he would say just one more question, and that's when the crime was solved because the person... Sure. Yeah. So a Columbus close is, it looks like you've closed, but it's just one more comment. And I do this with sales teams, mm. which is remember, and it's the biggest advantage in doing business with them. But now, okay, remember, and this is your last words linger. And it is not a new idea. It's the number one philosophy or idea for your session. Brilliant. Brilliant. Right? I'm so, going to come back to you for one more tip, but I'm going to go over to yeah. John Baker, who's been sitting here very patiently in case the Zoom goes down, John. John, what have you taken away from today? Would it interest you to know, Derek? <laughs> it would. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, John, you've got a lot of notes on you. Oh, your absolutely. I really, really loved uh, Patricia's phrase, before rapport. Mm. And you use it in the context of before you go and make a speech, mm. you thank the people, you talk to them, you welcome them, and they feel really good. But I'd actually add something to that. So partly because I've done it myself when speaking, and by asking a few questions while you talk to them, you've got a huge amount of research. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, you've tailored the presentation even further. The second thing you can do quite easily is just name drop and add some names into what you're talking about. And the audience suddenly think, oh, he really does know what's going on. And that can be really, really powerful. Suddenly, it feels very, very personal. But while you were talking about it, I thought it's not just for when you're speaking. There was some years ago where I was going in to do a sales 
sales pitch. And beforehand, you know what it's like. You sit down in the reception area and you can either just sit and chat to nobody. You can twiddle your thumbs and look a bit nervous or you can talk to the receptionist. And so I just went and chatted to the receptionist, asked a few questions politely. Then when sitting in the room with the MD, did the same thing. Name dropped a couple of times and put in place what I'd learned. Three weeks later, once I'd got the job, he said, one of the things we liked the best about that was you knew so much about the company, but more to the point, you'd spoken to the receptionist. What you didn't know at the time it was my wife. Wow. So always be nice to the receptionist. Always. Brilliant. That's fantastic, John. Thanks for that. And thanks for staying in our um, studio for us all this time. Um, thanks for joining Monday Night Live. Before I hand you over to Patricia for a 10 second clip uh do join us at the hideaway cafe at, on wednesday morning at 7 30 if you can get up that early and uh, on friday we will be at the victory services club and love to see anybody there in for samaritans for crisis and uh, for shelter patricia you've got 10 seconds just one more thing please it sounds as if your session on friday people will be getting better by doing good and I hope they all put five or ten pounds in the hat on the way out because as I learned from my parents their actions not their words you can't be too kind or too generous thank you for your invitation and I love the studio in Swan Patricia Fripp thanks for joining us and I hope you'll join us uh after I've delivered you back to Heathrow Airport uh, on Wednesday uh again from San Francisco absolutely brilliant and uh we'll